episode of Time to Say Goodbye. This will come out on the 17th, I believe. Today's episode is just me, Andy, with my friend Jake Werner. Jake, how are you doing? Thanks for coming on. Yeah, great to be here, Andy. Um, So Jake, just to give a brief introduction, Jake, um, I've known Jake for a while. We've known each other since graduate school, uh, different schools, but students around the same time. Jake, do you remember actually when we first met? I think in, in China, probably 20, 2010, 2011. Yeah, right. Yeah, it was a group of, uh, you know, like shitty expat academics hanging out in, in China. You know, Jake is one of the few people who was interested in China and history, but also like, you know, in the Venn diagram, also interested in like global political economy and philosophy and these kind of bigger questions. So um, I always felt like it was really useful and fun to talk to Jake about some of this stuff. And recently, Jake's current position, his, he's now a officially a postdoctoral Global China Research Fellow at the Boston University Global Development Policy Center. Um, but aside from that, he's also a co-founder of a group, I believe, based in Chicago, right, called Justice is Global. Um, and mm-hmm. he is, so he's been focusing a lot more on activism, on policy work, writing about the contemporary uh, world in terms of U.S. and China, U.S.-China relations, but also with a good historical perspective. Maybe the thing to add is that Justice is Global is is part of People's Action, which is a community organizing network. And a, a lot of the a lot of my experience that informs my political thinking comes from a background in community organizing. Yeah, <laughs> great. And we'll talk about that. I want to talk about that maybe near the end of our talk. But um, the reason I asked Jake to come on is because I know he's been thinking a lot about this topic that I think, you know, I should learn more about. And I think people in this po- who listen to this podcast would be interested to hear more about, which is um, like, what is going on with all this push for government spending? You've probably seen the headlines about the infrastructure bill, different trillion dollar initiatives that the Democrats are pushing in the Senate and the House. Um, you know, there's all these headlines today about really spectacular events, obviously COVID, climate change, um, you know, foreign policy, Afghanistan, there was a major events happening yesterday um, on the 15th. And it seems like what's kind of going under the radar is this, what seems to be this huge sea change in governance in the United States, where in reaction to, I don't know if you could say like 2008 or Bernie and Trump, there seems to be this huge reaction against austerity, against small government, a re-embrace of big government embodied in you know, infrastructure, quote unquote, or government spending. But I think also at the margins of this conversation is, are the U.S. politicians feel they need to re-embrace government spending because of this fear of or competition with China, right? And that's, I think these are two parts of the puzzle that I'm having a hard time figuring out. I know Jake has been spending a lot of time thinking about this. Um, So just to kind of set the scene for those who are not, who have not been following the story, Um, As of right now, there's two bills that have been um, passed by the Senate, but have not officially been, you know, finished and signed, of course. The first is a quote-unquote hard infrastructure bill, like literally like cement and concrete, like building roads and bridges for a trillion dollars, and a $3.5 trillion quote-unquote soft infrastructure, human infrastructure bill for things to deal with, um, you know, like universal pre-K, college education, healthcare, um, immigrant rights, um, and some investment into clean energy and so on, right? So these are big, huge dollar amount commitments 
to fixing all these things that, I don't know, like neoliberal governments since Reagan have ignored. So there's two tiers to this question. I know we can just kind of take it one by one, Jake, right? But the first, I guess, is do we see this as this real sea change um, in terms of U.S. governments over the last 40 years? And second, to what extent are these policies motivated by this fear of China as the United States kind of main competitor. So let's maybe just kind of focus on the first, like, how do you see this just in a sort of, if it's possible, in a sort of purely domestic sense? How do you think these, how do you see these bills? I think there's a, there really is a sea change, um, definitely at the level of ideology. So we'll, we have yet to see if this plays out in terms of policy, because, um, you know, the U.S. system is kind of set up to prevent any major changes, and the Biden administration has been pretty reluctant to challenge that. So the the Senate is a major uh, obstacle to passing this legislation. There are a lot of um, centrist Democrats who are sort of reluctant to hostile towards it. There's, there's sort of a lot of internal politicking here between progressives who are pushing one direction and the like the remnant neoliberal Democrats uh, in the Congress who are, who are really slow to move. But that's sort of, so there's a, it's an open question whether the, there's a major policy shift. Um, I think, however, that at the level of uh, political thinking within the Democratic Party, there really has been a fundamental change. What, what do you think has, how do, what, to what do you attribute that change in the Democratic Party? Is it, Bernie's success, or is it the like uh, horror of seeing Trump win and trying to think about well, how can we appeal to the the middle class or the working class more with like material, concrete improvements in their lives and all that? It's definitely it's definitely both of those. Um, I mean, I think the you know the the Biden people essentially come out of the neoliberal wing of the Democratic Party, but I think a lot of the people in the administration. Um, were really shaken by the Trump victory and spent a lot of time reflecting on what happened and what needs to change um, in order to rebuild the legitimacy of the Democratic Party and rebuild the legitimacy of their vision of the United States. Um, yeah, so how- but when it comes to when it comes to things like immigration and foreign policy, things where the issue of nationalism becomes relevant, then there's much greater reluctance to to work with the progressives on those issues. Right. So there's kind of a national um, limit on how far they're willing to go. Just to right. maybe help. Um, but just just to finish that oh, yeah. that question, sure. it, I think it's it, it definitely is that, that Trump won and beat Clinton, who was sort of the the face of, uh, you know, conventional neoliberal politics. Um, and it definitely is the, the challenge of progressives in the party. But it's also the sense that the United States really has not been performing very well economically. Um, there's a sensitivity to increasing inequality and low rates of investment, low rates of productivity growth, uh, and um, just a general sort of stagnation in the U.S. economy that, that is also a key part of this. And so maybe they would just kind of ignore that if it weren't for the political challenge from the left and the right. Um, but that is, that is a really important part of their thinking, and, and a lot of the, the response here is coming is, is, a, is, is not just like we're afraid of the left and the right, it's also we they, they have a vision for um, how the how the U.S. economy is supposed to get going again. Yeah. Yeah. So maybe to back up or to also perhaps kind of clarify some of the terms we've been using, you know, there's a 
basic story in terms of, let's just say, like United States economic thinking that with the New Deal and FDR onwards, the signal, the sort of embrace of big government spending, Keynes is a big, Keynesianism is a term that gets attached to that. That is, you know, the New Deal, highways and roads, uh, building lots of infrastructure, um, lots of social welfare programs in this country that, as the story goes, around the 70s and 80s was gutted and this era of Reaganomics, trickle-down economics, supply-side economics, these are terms people may have heard. And, you know, the term that's kind of dominant today is neoliberalism. <laughs> and the question, I guess, we're, we're debating is, it does seem like neoliberalism was this term that was kind of put into the spotlight. And I think 08 is a big is a big moment for that. And now you see all sorts of people, not just like the sort of academic Marxists, but also like centrist foreign policy thinkers. You know, you showed me a few articles where people who are just very much in and of the system itself are also naming neoliberalism as the problem that has to be overcome. What, what do you, how, when you use the word neoliberal, like you call Clinton and Biden neoliberal, what do you mean when you say that? There can be really unproductive debates about neoliberalism and like, like what's the true definition of neoliberalism and let's have a big fight about what the true definition is. And I don't, I don't find that, I find that very frustrating and, and kind of useless. But, but when I talk about neoliberalism, I think about it as uh, sort of an entire social system of like a particular organization of capitalism as a social system. So, so not, not even just the economy, but thinking about capitalism as something uh, as, as a totality of all the relations in society, which connects culture and politics and the economy together into a system that reproduces itself. There's a, there's an opening for, uh, for ideas that challenge yeah. neoliberal practices and neoliberal ideology in a really deep way, uh, both on the left and the right now. And so, my, my read of that is that neoliberalism as a system started to disintegrate after the 2008 financial crisis. Yeah. So for instance, in its infrastructure bill, you know, it's calling for uh, the human infrastructure bill is calling for like universal pre-K and tuition-free colleges. And um, there's also uh, the real infrastructure bill is like, I don't know, build a lot of roads and, and bridges and stuff. Like, why is that? Why, why would, why were these considerations like not part of neoliberalism and why is introducing universal education why is government spending to build greater physical infrastructure why are these how do these somehow mark a new era um in in your view so the 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 basic the sort of basic set of beliefs and practices that uh was dominant in the neoliberal period was um uh faith in the market as the best way of coordinate coordinating economic activity and, and organizing society uh, and a sort of methodological individualism. So you see the world as individuals sort of struggling with each other or coordinating, like working with each other in exchange with each other. But anyway, it's all individuals. Yeah. And the idea of uh, like collective identities and, and the, the, the reality of uh, collective bodies, like a class or like a nation. Or a government. Um, yeah, those, those, that is, was sort of excluded. So you have the market, you have individualism, and um, and you also have a set of ideas around abstract equality, where sort of like everyone is the same uh, to the extent that uh, the thing that differentiates them, they're sort of the same in the abstract, but the thing that differentiates them is their ability to perform on the market. So people who are successful in right. uh, in the 
in competition on the labor market, those people have greater value than people who are unsuccessful. Uh, and because it's sort of the, the individualist, right? It's individualism as a value, but it's also individualism as a way of seeing the world. Yeah. And the, the corollary of the other side of that is just that, uh, like abstract social forces are not what is causing people to be who they are. So when you look at people, you just see the individual, which means they're responsible for who they are and what they become. And if they fail, that means it's their own fault. And if they succeed, that means it's their own fault. So that's a whole, there's a whole constellation of sort of like a worldview, like a way of interpreting what we see in the world that that came with neoliberalism that became, became persuasive. So, so to kind of push that further, you're saying, for instance, a sort of Clintonite, hostility towards universal education or reduced tuition or universal pre-K is founded in this idea that it's not the government's job to raise your kids. It's not the government's job to provide you an education. It's your own individual responsibility to earn the income, to pay for tuition, to earn the income, to pay off your debts and so on. And for the government to step in and try to kind of provide this stuff, you know, through taxpayer money, Right, you would say that that's kind of like the philosophical shift at, at, at work here, right? But there's but there's sort of a wider range of possibilities in there. So at, at a deep level, it's the the best way to do things is through the market and individual responsibility. The right wing takes that and says, okay, you know, we need to cut off all forms of support, otherwise people are going to be irresponsible, and we just throw them brutally onto the market. But the the left wing, the left wing of neoliberalism. So like Clinton Which is represented by people like Clinton, like Bill Clinton, like Obama. Um, they come at it a little bit differently. They they think less in terms of these very um, like moralizing individual self responsibility. They think more at the terms of like in big picture, like how are we going to come up with an economy that works for the most people in the best way? And so for them, they're thinking about market failures. They don't think the market is the measure of everything. There can be places where the market fails. But then mm. in w- what you want to do in that case is you want to come up with market mechanisms. You want to use the government to simulate the places that the market is not functioning like the market. And so an example of that is like um, various incentive programs that will cause people to act in the right way. So something like sin taxes, like people are drinking too much yeah. uh, sugary beverages. So you increase the price on that. And then that is supposed to internalize the market mechanism, right? There are these externalities to the market. There are these effects that the market uh, left alone has that are, are not optimal or not the like, most efficient outcome. And so in order to uh, correct the market, you introduce in- incentives that work, that generally work at an individual level. Yeah. Um, and then you're going to get the right market outcome. Right. So there's, a, there's you know, like a philosophical range of this, but it, it all is founded basically on the idea of belief in the market. It's just a question of whether the market needs to be massaged or should be left entirely to itself. Yeah. So a lot of these, what these, a lot of these policies represent therefore is, um, an ex- like I think what Bernie's campaign was really about, but I kind of think the under publicized aspects of Trump's successful campaign was about was this criticism of market fundamentalism of let, letting everything up to the market to decide and actually having like the government well, like the government, but also government, Bernie as a representative of the people, right? The people will look out for each other right? and not right. just, right? And so, okay. And so you're, you're pretty optimistic that on some basic ideological level, at least in terms of like, what is, what is, what is okay? What is allowed to be said 
in a mainstream publication, like occasionally even like in the Times or the Post or something like that, is a criticism of this ideology that it, when we were in college in the 2000s was, you know, unquestionable, right? It was, it was beyond reproach, basically. I, I would go even further than that. I would say that the ideology has really broken down to 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 an extraordinary extent, and that yeah. it's like now it's now almost common sense that inequality is a serious problem. Whereas yeah. that idea just doesn't make sense if you're looking at the world through a neoliberal lens, right? Because it's about equal opportunity, not equality of like right. results and and all that. Stuff. Inequality is good. It's efficient because it encourages people to to do their best in through market competition. Right. And if you were to reduce inequality very much, then that would cause the market to malfunction. Right. And, and I, you know, it's like, it's not like these ideas are gone. There's, they still have a, a huge amount of power, um, like both politically in, in the, you know, particularly the Republican party. Yeah. Um, um, but also the democratic party, but, but yeah. it's now, it's now sort of a, a, a point of faith that, um, like inequality has gotten to a point that it's, undermining key things like like economic growth and like political legitimacy. Yeah. Yeah. So it seems within the Biden administration and the Democratic Party, there's a spectrum of opinions. There are obviously true believers like, you know, the sort of squad AOC Bernie types who are just like, we should just criticize this as much as possible. There are those I think we suspect someone like Biden is like probably deep down attached to his older worldview, but he understands the pragmatic value of departing from it and pragmatically adopting things like uh, big infrastructure, big government spending, especially I think COVID exacerbates this for a lot of them. like, Oh, like we're not going to recover unless we take some extraordinary Definitely. measures. Definitely. Okay. So then the second half of the question is, um, you know, like on the, so, so in, in a vacuum in the, the infrastructure, industrial policy, this idea, there's this uh, other law or this uh, uh, bill that's been passed partially that would call the United States Innovation and Competition Act of 2021 that is meant to boost, quote, technological, industrial innovation, chip, te- chip and chip technology, artificial intelligence, quantum computing, robotics, and other technologies. This is all very much justified, both in terms of, you know, picking the United States up and reversing neoliberalism, but also in terms of um, we can't let China win, right? And, and this is the question that I've been wondering about, like, to, like on the one hand, all these big government spending projects are what United States citizens or people in the United States um, have been calling for for decades. On the other hand, it does seem like there was something sinister might be too strong of a word, but like something uneasy about the kind of justifications and thinkings at the margins of these bills. Like to what extent is this about a competition with China in the, in your opinion, in the minds of, senators, congresspeople, you know, the administration, people setting the agenda in D.C.? It's not all about China. And I think for a lot of people, China is a convenient, um, a convenient rationale to advance what they're actually concerned about, which is domestic, creating a more inclusive domestic society. Um, there's just no question that there are a lot of people who don't really care that much about foreign policy or don't have a particular animus against China who are using, using the China threat language opportunistically to try to convince people, um, people further to the right to vote for bills that the Democrats want. And the innovation competition act was, was overwhelmingly supported in the Senate. So it's being, it's the counterpart is being debated in the house right now. 
Um, but the Senate passed the bill overwhelmingly in a bipartisan fashion, which is, you know, something that doesn't happen in D.C. very often now. Um, and so, like, like, part of the impetus here is uh, people are worried about China, so let's wrap up whatever our particular legislative priority is and say, we have to do this because otherwise China will win. Right. Or we have to do this because it's going to help us beat China. So there's no question that that's part of what's going on. Um, but there, there also is a really deep and authentic concern on the part of many people in the political elite and uh, increasingly some people in the economic elite who think that uh, the, the U.S. economy is just not going to be successful unless we start to uh, use the state to support uh, U.S. competition against China economically. And th there are overlaps with that, between that group and group of people who are worried about China's potential challenge to U.S. Uh, global hegemony. Yeah. Um, so, you know, there, there's a range of concerns here, but people are finding common ground uh, around the problem of China. Um, and the way that I would try to explain what's going on, which to, try to, to try to encompass all of those different groups with different agendas, uh, is to say that they're, they're all responding to this breakdown of neoliberalism as, this, as the system of, of growth and legitimacy that they, that they came to power on, right? So we're talking about people like neoliberal Democrats, we're talking about you know, like corporate leaders, um, they yeah. came to power through neoliberalism, and they and they believed in it. Um, so let, let's name let's name names. Who are who are some of these groups that you're referring to? And you know, to the extent that you can name names, or just refer to like maybe institutes or parties or factions within the Democratic Party. Well, spe specifically on China, um, there's a group of people in the foreign policy world, uh, and probably most uh, most importantly in the figure of Jake Sullivan, who's the national security advisor, um, and who also has experience in domestic politics because he was a top campaign advisor to Hillary Clinton's uh, domestic policy advisor to Hillary Clinton's campaign. Um, so there's a group of people uh, around him, uh, many of whom are in the administration now, who spent a lot of time rethinking after Trump won, rethinking like what's going on in American society, how can we revive the attractiveness of the Democrats' message, how can we, uh, like, what kinds of policies do we need to change in order to make sure that the American economy grows strongly again and is more inclusive? Um, and, a, like, part of the conclusions there don't have anything to do with China. Part of the conclusions are just we need to invest in the United States, we need to uh, have lower levels of inequality. Um, but they also are not just saying like, we need to wrap this up in China politics in order to sell it. They also believe that part of the reason the United States is struggling socially is because China has grown more powerful and is starting to challenge the American dominance of the most high profit sectors in the global economy. And if we don't effectively repel that challenge, then the U.S. economy is in a lot of trouble because the U.S. economy depends really heavily on that those handful of uh, high-profit sectors. And so we're talking about like the big tech companies, um, the big finance companies, um, like all, all of the sort of quasi-monopoly companies that profits are, are really highly concentrated in right now. Growth in the U.S. economy really depends on them continuing to dominate Silicon, those sectors. Silicon Valley, basically, right? Silicon Valley, but also 
uh, Wall Street and um, and and they have their eye on uh, what what they always call the industries of the future. Mm-hmm. So I think the the analysis here is 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 maybe a little simplistic that it's like whatever is high tech is going yeah. to have high profits. Right, right, right. And that's not what causes high profits. What causes high profits is having a market structure that allows you to to concentrate the the profits that are going through the economy. Um, and that's you know that's like Facebook and Google, for example. They they have high profits because they have um, a monopoly market structure, not because they're high tech. Right. But I think a lot of the thinking around this essentially is high tech equals high profits. And so when we're thinking about things like artificial intelligence and advanced robotics and biomedicine. Um, and then, and then clean energy usually gets thrown in there too, even though I think that's a slightly different case, but, but they're, they're thinking about these, the so-called industries of the future that are going to be the source of high profits in the future. And China is making, uh, making a play to dominate those industries, um, through, you know, major state support of innovation and supporting the, those sectors, uh, for Chinese companies. And they're worried that the United States needs to jump out ahead of that and dominate those sectors as well. Yeah. So you sent me an article. This is from Jake Sullivan and Jen Harris. Sullivan, you mentioned is currently the United States National Security Advisor. Jen Harris um, has ties to Hillary Clinton and worked in the Bush administration. She's currently in the Roosevelt Institute. This is an article from last year, 2020. She's she's moved to the National Security Council. Okay. So she's officially in power. Um, And they wrote together that Uh, and we'll put a link in the show notes. China's subsidies have paid off handsomely in areas like artificial intelligence, solar energy, and 5G, where many experts believe China is on par with or already outstripping the U.S. U.S. firms will continue to lose ground in the competition with Chinese companies if Washington continues to rely so heavily on private sector research and development, which is directed towards short-term profit-making rather than long-term transformative breakthroughs. And so this gets us to like sort of the... This is a separate issue, right? There's infrastructure, there's, you know, let's reduce inequality. And then there's this question of uh, industrial policy, which is um, should, to what extent are governments kind of, uh, should they just let the free market decide what people do with their money or should governments create uh, certain incentives or certain mm-hmm. institutions that actually uh, direct, you know, the capital, the money in their, in their, in their country towards certain industries making certain goods for those again, who's are familiar with East Asia, like famously like Japan is one of the big success stories of an industrial policy. So is South Korea. And then I think, you know, in China would be kind of following in that, in that, in that model of, you know, these large companies that you see like, like, you know, in Japan it was like Mitsubishi and Sumitomo behind them was the Japanese government supporting them and the Chebol in South Korea and now these large companies in China. So industrial policy is not at all an abnormal thing in Asia, right? But in the United States, I guess it's kind of seen as this, we used to do this, then we didn't do this for a long time, and now maybe we should be returning to doing this again uh, is kind of what like Sullivan and, and Harris are saying here. And then now, now you think that, yeah, like what do we make of this this quote? Like do you think that, do you think they're genuinely, authentically, like, scared of China? Or do you think, or or do you think that they just are using it as a rhetorical, um, as rhetoric to justify policies that they are just mostly interested in as, as Americans focused on the United States, the United States economy? I, I think it's both. I mean, you know, like, if, if you're smart in politics, you have to use the effective messaging. Um, but on the other hand, I think this really is a, a serious concern, particularly for people who are thinking about 
um, foreign policy or thinking about the, the like high tech industries of the future. But the, I, that, that quote does a really good job sort of illustrating the ways in which neoliberalism no longer structures the way people are thinking about the world. Because like one, like one of the features of neoliberalism was that um, sort of profit maximizing activity was thought of as intrinsically efficiency maximizing. And um, as market forces got stronger and competition got more intense, then uh, the need to show a short-term return on your investment became more and more important. And that meant that investment was channeled in certain ways that, you know, I think, you know, from my perspective and, and from an increasing number of people's perspectives, did not build the economy out in the right way. Now, I, I, I would differ, I think, from Sullivan and Harris here in where investment ought to go. But I would absolutely agree with them that uh, the state needs to come in and start directing uh, how the economy works rather than just be the handmaid to the market, which is, you know, like people like the Obama administration was was OK with interfering in the market, but it did so in order to perfect the market. And what Sullivan and Harris are saying here and what the Biden administration is talking about is not perfecting the market. It's it's really setting the priorities that the market is going to serve. So there's been a fundamental reversal about um, about how the state and the market interact with each other. Yeah. Uh, but I, I think the, the 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 important the thing that's that's worrying to me about this approach is um, sort of the bigger picture about how how we're going to do that like, and why we're doing that. Um, does does the state direct the market to? Uh, to defeat our great power competitors, or does the state direct the market to uh, to change American society and global society in in a way that actually meets the the really serious challenges we're facing, whether that's climate change or yeah. public health or inequality? And and these are these are two different roads. Like one road leads to uh, concentrating a lot of investment in the high profit sectors of the economy and those sectors that are imagined to be high profit in the future. And another road really doesn't involve that. That, that would be a really minor priority in, in for meeting human needs, which requires a lot of just basic infrastructure, like building railroads, um, building uh, childcare networks, building public health infrastructure, uh, educating people in these basic things, um, just putting a lot of money into uh, clean energy, you know, these are, these are not high return, like high profit sectors. Yeah. Um, but the, I think the, the approach that, that we see here with in, with Sullivan and Harris and, and more generally with the Biden administration and a lot of Congress is just to, to prioritize the high profit sectors, because that's, what's going to decide if the United States wins in this competition. China, right. Yeah. So I think the underlying question here that we could just probably put on the table is, uh, and this is kind of the concern we've been working towards in this conversation is there does seem to be right now, this possibility of this almost kind of weird position of being in crude terms, someone who was a supporter of Bernie Sanders, but is also very demonizing of China. And does that matter in the sense of, and you know, you won't, you won't, you don't have to name any names, but like being on social media, I notice people like, you know, Matt Iglesias, Matt Stoller, who will for very vocally, you know, in favor of Bernie. So they're good leftists or good progressives, whatever you want to say, but at the same time are also among the people kind of saying like China is a threat and we have to do whatever we can to stop China. And, you know, the question I think 
that's lingering in my mind is like, well, if this if this leads to a lot of policies that I think the United States should be doing, right, which is reinvestment in government, public goods, then what does it matter that it's being couched in anti-China uh-huh. terms? Um, and does the latter somehow spoil the former, right? Um, and I guess another question, and I guess the broader question is something we talked about um, on this podcast, you know, a lot dating back to, I think earlier this year or late last year was, you know, we had this transition from Trump to Biden. When when this podcast began, Trump, the thing that was in the headlines was, well, Trump is racist because he says China virus all the time. Okay, fine, right? Like, but Biden doesn't say China virus. He doesn't say Wuhan virus. But there is actually a sort of continuity, right, from the Mateo, is that his name? Not the uh, national security guy for Trump, who was very demonizing of China, right? to the Biden administration, which isn't racist, which isn't crude and vulgar, but have kind of continued uh, talking about how China is this, this threat uh, to the U.S. So, so it does seem like we, the end of the Trump era has not actually led to the end of hostilities with China. It seems like the hostilities with China are kind of here to stay. Um, I'd be, so I want to talk about like how we got to that point, but maybe before we get to that point, if if someone is like pro all the policies that Bernie, you know, was kind of throwing out there for the United States and, and Warren, but is being couched in a very kind of toxic anti-China way, what does that matter, you know, to you? Yeah, I I I really want to emphasize that this is a, a crucial, crucial issue that if we that if we get the domestic politics right, but we get the the foreign policy wrong, that's going to systematically undermine the progressive possibilities in the domestic politics and, um, and also make it impossible to, to, uh, to win on the climate crisis to, um, to improve things in the rest of the world. Uh, so it would, it would be really devastating if we ended up in a serious U S China conflict, which is the, which is the path that we're on right now. And you're right. The, the way that the Biden administration talks about China is, is different in the sense that it's not racist in the way that <laughs> Trump, the Trump administration was. Um, and it's, and it's not quite as, um, uh, uh, florid, you know, the, the <laughs> language is not just like over the tops, like comic book yeah. kind of rhetoric. Uh, but the policy, actually the policies are even more, I, I expected there to mainly be continuity. Yeah, but the policy continuity has been even stronger than I expected. Essentially, the Biden administration has kept everything that that Trump did on China, including the racist stuff, the stuff that just like targets Chinese visas to the mm. United States. So, except for they're the saying Wuhan virus, right? Right, right. So you know, like the re- <laughs> I mean, it's it's not, and it's not like the the rhetoric on China has also been really um, confrontational. So they yeah. cut out the, the like really, really noxious, um, white nationalist kind of stuff, but, <laughs> um, but the, but the, but the orientation towards China has been really confrontational. Um, and I think that, uh, part of that is just the administration is afraid of, of the right wing attacking them. I think, I think the administration overall is, uh, is overly sensitive to the possibility of getting attacked from the right on nationalist issues in general. So like immigration has been another real, real disappointment on the part of the administration. And I, and I interpret that as primarily just being afraid that nationalists are going to make a big deal out of it. And so I think that's part of what's going on with China as well. Um, but, uh, to the question of like, what's going on with, 
liberals and progressives who are anti-China. I think there's a range of there's a range of possibilities there. Um, one is is just you know like we talked about before, just pure opportunism and trying to advance a domestic yeah. agenda through this foreign threat language. Who do, you, who, do you um, think, who do you think would be counted as that, or like what kind of groups do you think are doing that? I I, th- I mean, my read of Iglesias is that's what that's what he's doing. Yeah, um, he doesn't like, actually care I, about I, China. I've, no, I, I've I've heard him I've heard him elsewhere interviewing someone who's talking about a great power conflict and was saying what from my perspective is very sensible things and he didn't seem to have any problem with it. <laughs> so I think that that I think with someone like him, um, it's 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 substantively unrelated to to the China issue and and I think there are unfortunately quite a quite a few people in D.C. you know who whose incentives essentially are like how like how can I most quickly get my agenda advanced. And a lot of people who really don't know the first thing about China or care about it are happy to, to wrap up whatever policy they, they want in this. And this, and this could be, this could be progressive policies that I, that I support. Otherwise yeah. it could also be um, like corporate uh, corporate agenda kind of things. There's a lot, there's a lot of these big quasi monopoly companies that are saying you can't, do anti-monopoly politics because if you do, then China is going to win. So it, it's everyone like across yeah. the political spectrum. There's opportunism. Do you, do you think that this is there's something specifically specific to China as a threat that allows this? Like, is it a particularly good bogeyman, or do you like maybe 30 years ago we'd be doing the same thing with the USSR? You know, like it's just like they're just like groping for whatever, and they just land upon China now. Or do you kind of think like? There's something specific. Maybe it's the size of China. Maybe it's there's some sort of like, some sort of like stereotype or prejudice against China as being like not not a European country, you know, not a white country that that somehow is like creates more of a almost like knee jerk reaction. Like, oh yes, of course, we like, we, we must do whatever to to stop those people. Yeah, I mean, like at one level, a lot of the people who do this, um, they're just sort of grasping for whatever is at hand. But then the question is like, why is China at hand? And that gets to the substance of the of the issue here, which is like there's 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 a whole a whole range of things where China um, sort of becomes a focus for uh, anxieties in the U.S. Um, and and part of this and and just to I want to make sure that I say this like if if you're critical of you should be critical of China, <laughs> the, the Chinese government is is a terrible reactionary government. Um, so what I'm not saying is that we can't be critical of the Chinese government or Chinese society. I mean, Chinese society is characterized by a lot of this, the same issues that, um, that progressives criticize in the United States There's terrible inequality and exploitation and, and uh, horrifying prejudice against minorities. Um, uh, like the, uh, uh, misogyny is, is even significantly worse than in the United States, like across this whole range of issues. Like there are reasons that progressives look at what's going on in China and are like, this is terrible. I mean, it is yeah, terrible yeah, from yeah. a progressive perspective. Yeah. Um, so there are some people like that. Uh, and you know, what I would say to those people is uh, don't stop being critical of Chinese society, but we need to think about how we can, um, how we can avoid having those legitimate progressive critiques get manipulated by interests that want to militarize U.S. society and want to preserve uh, U.S. domination of the global economy, we have to be very careful about allowing ourselves to be used for that kind of agenda, number one. And number two, 
Um, being critical of Chinese society, just like being critical of U.S. society, it doesn't accomplish anything on its own. We, we actually need a strategy to change structurally what's going on in these countries. And what's going on in these countries is related because they both exist within the global system. So if we want, you know, if we want to change things in the United States, and we, even if we don't care about China, we need to think about how, uh, how our agenda in the United States is going to change the global economy and how that is going to affect, um, come back and affect domestic politics, a major great power conflict, then that's going to give extraordinary power to the right um, in China. So in China, it's going to make human rights worse because it's going to strengthen nationalists and authoritarians in China. Um, but it's also going to strengthen nationalists and authoritarians in the United States and make, you know, human rights and racism and um, inequality and, you know, all the things that we're worried about domestically um, is going to is going to really strengthen the right on those issues and make it much harder for us to to advance a progressive agenda domestically, even if we are uninterested in the China question. Yeah. Yeah. So I think that gets to something that, you know, I know that you and I kind of agree upon. This is almost like a methodological question and it's, it might be kind of a little abstract for people to think about, but the way I kind of think about it is, you know, to the extent that you look at the problems in a given society or the, what's going on in a given part of the world, the, the easy, the, the thing that most people do and, and the, which is kind of a trap is to kind of attribute, well, these things, that are happening in China or happening in the United States are all because of some sort of deeper cultural or mm-hmm. place specific. There's something China, spe- specifically Chinese that explains, I don't know, like the milk powder scandal from 20 years mm-hmm. ago explains some sort of, or the, the floods in Henan, like a few, a few weeks ago, or, you know, and the, uh, vice versa, like something particularly American that explains, I don't know, like, uh, you know, like shootings or whatever. Well, that's, maybe that's a bad example. That's pretty American. But the, but the point is, <laughs> <laughs> but, but, but it's like, rather than kind of viewing each of these places as kind of like countries that are islands in the middle of the ocean, right? These, the problems, the things that, the events that kind of un, un, unravel in a lot of parts of the world are due to that country, that society's position in a global system relative to all the other countries around the world. And therefore, if you're going to criticize, let's say, inequality in China, what you're really trying to, what you really need to understand is, well, how does inequality in China, how is it a manifestation of inequality globally? You know, how is it a manifestation of things that are happening globally such that you get out of this trap of like, we, the good guys are telling the bad, the bad people what's wrong with their society. You know, like we right. want to be, we yep. want to be reflexive and, and, and so on. And then that's, that's kind of a, I don't know. It's a, t- it's a tough point to kind of massage because then you get into like, well, are you being an apologist? Are you being et cetera? And, and well, so maybe- I, I mean, I think it's, I think it's, 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 it's helpful to say like, I, I don't, you know, I don't see any reason to, to hold back criticism. Um, but I, I think the way that it's often motivated is, is through a self other binary where it's like the United States is democracy and China is autocracy. The United States is whatever openness and, I don't know, this Freedom. doesn't seem so plausible these days, but like, uh, like multicultural and open to different kinds of people. And, and China is all about totalitarian uh, homogenization and repression of difference. And like that, first of all, that's wrong. Um, like the, the United States became um, the sort of trajectory of the United States and the tra- trajectory of China over the course of the neoliberal period is strongly parallel. Like as, as the United States became more individualist, so did China. 
as the United States became more multicultural, so did China. As the United States became more open to diversity of thought and uh, contention around like divisive cultural issues or whatever, like so did China. And it's not, you, you don't want to say they're exactly the same. Like there's, right. there's, there are clearly differences in the way it's in the institutions and, and the, the degree of openness that's, that's possible and the degree of people getting, um, you know, like the degree of people being punished just for saying something in China. There's, there's no question that China is a more politically repressive than the United States across this period, but it was the same trajectory. Yeah. And the trajectory has reversed in the same way, just like at, at the same point, when the United States, when, when reactionary forces in the United States, when, when nationalism and racism and authoritarianism suddenly leapt to prominence politically, that is the exact same moment that the same thing happened in China and a bunch of other places. So what we're talking about here is a, is a global shift away from neoliberal openness. Like there's, not everything is bad about neoliberalism. Like neoliberalism also accommodated multiculturalism and openness and diversity and, and social fluidity um, in, in important ways. Um, and that gave way to a revival of nationalism and racism and authoritarianism in the U S and China and also India and Turkey and Poland and Brazil and around the world. So what we're talking about here is something that's going on at the global level. And if we talk about it instead as this is the essence of China to be repressive, or this is the essence of the communist party to always hate openness and to, to destroy ethnic difference or whatever, we're just misunderstanding what's going on. And that means we're going to come up with a bad strategy for responding to it. Yeah. Yeah. That's good. And maybe we should just kind of delve into this. I did want to kind of, we can return to the policy stuff at policy stuff at the end, cause it'll be perhaps more prescriptive and concrete and forward looking. But the other thing I wanted to talk about, and I know you've written about this recently, you gave a talk uh, that's on YouTube. We'll put a link up there. Maybe it'll also, I think you were talking about perhaps circulating it. The text um, later was you kind of give your own sort of, interpretation of the history, not just of China, but also sort of U.S.-China relations or China in the world over the last 20, 30 years. And I think there's kind of two things worth kind of emphasizing. Obviously, I want to hear you expand upon these. The first is that what people may forget with the recent Trump hostilities is that there was a moment in the 90s into the 2000s when it seemed like the United States was really... um, good friends with China, that China and the United States would get along economically and politically. The United States, Bill Clinton famously kind of helps push China uh, to help get China into the World Trade Organization, talks about how it'll be a win-win scenario for China and, and the United States to be part of the WTO together. So what was, so that, and then there's a break. Um, and, you know, I know you, for you, the 2008 was a big turning point. So I guess that might be something to worth talking about. Like, what was that before and what was that after? And then alongside that, um, in your in this talk you just gave at Boston University, you said something that um, that China recently has kind of begun to break a, China itself, right? So thinking about China and so on, and we're talking about the government, the PRC government, the Chinese Communist Party leaders like Xi Jinping, they themselves have begun to be uncomfortable with the neoliberal global system. You write that um, there's been a sort of resentment or distinctive critique of neoliberalism that comes from China's government, China's leaders, and a key driver of this thinking in this regard has been China's persistent subordination economically, politically, and culturally within that system. So I know this is like a big topic, but like in your mind, how do you understand China on its own terms? What has been going on with China 
and I don't know, globalization talk um, in the last 20, 30 years to, 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 to kind of help us understand where we are today with, with, um, you know, with, the, with all the headlines we see about China. Yeah. I mean, one, maybe one way of introducing the topic is to say um, like when you're in the middle of one of these moments of capitalist growth, like, so when the neoliberal system was, was growing strongly and it seemed like it was meeting its promises, like the 1990s. Uh, yeah. 1990s and, you know, up, up to 2008, really. I mean, there's, there are constant financial crises and stuff, but those were all sort of understood as like, you know, you take the good <laughs> with the bad. Um, the, when the system is working well, then like, like, like I said before, there are always some people who are sort of sniping from the sidelines, but most people are like, okay, this works. And it makes sense to me. And, you know, even if I'm getting hurt by it, I understand why I'm getting hurt. Like, so there's a lot of people blaming themselves for their, for their own failure in the system. Um, so it's working ideologically to integrate people into the system. But at the same time, it's also constantly, I mean, you know, just the way the cap capitalism works through, uh, through inequality and exploitation, it's also constantly uh, building up uh, feelings like grievances and resentments and, and feelings of anger. And these get suppressed as long as the system is working and people are bought into it, but they're still happening and they're still building up. And one example of that in, in the, the paper that you're talking about there about um, China's integration into the global neoliberal system is that Chinese elites, on the one hand, they believed in the neoliberal global economy. They thought that they were traveling basically, before 2008, they thought they were basically traveling in the same direction of, of marketization and liberalization and integration into the global economy. They thought that the, the U.S. form of neoliberalism, free market neoliberalism, um, they thought that was the future for China. And you're talking about like Deng Xiaoping, early 80, late 70s, early 80s onwards into 2000s, or it was... In the 1990s, yeah, and, right, right. Yeah, right. I mean, even even after, maybe a little surprisingly, um, Xi Jinping seems to really have had in mind further significant market reforms. Mm. Um, Xi Jinping uh, became the head of the Communist Party in, in 2012, uh, and the first couple of years, it looked like he was going to be a market reformer. Uh, there were some serious, serious economic problems in 2015 that really changed right, the yeah. course for things. So, so some of this stuff, I mean, like market reform the, being a euphemism for like liberalizing things and reducing state. Right. right. Yeah. Right. Right. Like getting the state out of management of the economy. So that doesn't necessarily mean getting rid of state owned companies, but it does mean putting them under the power of the market rather than using the state to direct resources and set, set the goals and, and these sorts of things. Yeah. Um, uh, so anyway, coming back to that point, like neoliberal ideology was very strong in, in the, in the leadership, the Chinese leadership. Um, but even alongside that, there's this constant sense of being, um, looked down upon by the, particularly by the U S but by the, the West in general. Um, and this constant feeling of resentment that the United States was always lecturing them and telling them you're doing it wrong and you're, um, oppressive and unjust. And that wasn't, just wasn't fitting their, their own experience of this, which is actually we're very successful. If, you know, if you compare, uh, Chinese experience with the experience of other, uh, developing countries, China is overwhelmingly more successful than these other countries. Um, and, uh, in terms of, uh, economic growth, certainly, but also just in terms of sort of maintaining political legitimacy. I mean, we're talking about elites, right? We're not talking about 
we're, we're seeing this from the perspective of elites who don't care about progressive values. Um, <laughs> from their perspective, what you're trying to do is keep the economy growing and maintain the legitimacy of the political system. And that's true. I mean, that's true of the United States, too. That's true of elites everywhere. Yeah. Keep the economy growing and maintain the legitimacy of the political system. And China was far more successful at doing at accomplishing those two goals than any other developing country. And yet they're being subjected to this to to you know the all the American leaders constantly telling them that that you're doing it wrong and you need to do it faster. And what are, um, what are some of those criticisms? Well, that you have this the sort of standard like human rights criticisms. You should be a democracy. Yeah. If you really believe in in freedom, you should be a democracy. You should respect human rights. Um, you have the uh, the reform, the economic reform agenda. Uh, what you know, for, for complex historical reasons, uh, China didn't do a rapid neoliberalization of the planned economy, but, but yeah. unfolded liberalization over the course of 30, 30 years plus. Yeah. And the, by the time you get to the 1990s and you get the Clinton administration, um, the Treasury under Rubin and Summers um, and, and the IMF, which is essentially an extension of the, the Treasury Department, um, by that point, the the orthodoxy is you liberalize as fast as possible; otherwise, it's going to get it's going to go wrong. Yeah, and so the and here, like even after the the Asian financial crisis in 1997 sort of cast serious doubt on that set of prescriptions. That is continued to be the message of the United States, and on a whole range of issues from like currency, the valuation of the currency, to the financial industry, to yeah. um, yeah, to issues like uh, subsidies for state-owned industries, um, and then and then you get into some some other issues that are really just about like U.S. protecting U.S. corporations, like the um, like Chinese companies uh, gaining access to U.S. intellectual property, right. um, like on this whole range of issues, the 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 American side is constantly saying like you're doing this wrong. Yeah, or like, you need to do it faster. You need to do it better. Even if you even if you look at just like the headlines, the day to day headlines of the Wall Street Journal, they're just like constantly inferring that Chinese companies are cheating because the state is involved in right. a, to a right. certain degree. That was obviously a lot of the TikTok discourse last year, when they basically right. just like grab this company away from the person who created it. Right. Um, and here we can also shout out our mutual friend Isabella Weber, who recently has a book. Uh, called How China Escaped Shock Therapy. It's, I don't know if you follow China stuff, you've probably seen it mentioned in a lot of places. She's written a very interesting history of that debate in the 80s where a lot of World Bank, uh, Eastern European, and United States um, neoliberal thinkers came to China and was like, you should do this ASAP uh, overnight. People in China did want to do it overnight, but the, there's also a faction that did not. And, and that faction kind of you know, temporarily won and, and kind of staved off sort of what becomes in Russia shock therapy, which is overnight liberalization, which has very disastrous results um, there. So that that's a you know that's that's also in the news um, in, in the discourse of, of China watchers. Um, right, and that's and that's a key sort of moment in the way that China became neoliberal through a different path that allowed China to take stronger advantage of the possibilities in the global economy than other. Than either the former Soviet bloc or than the, the developing the, the global South. Yeah. So, but that that's been there from the beginning. Again. So then, what? Why is it? Why? What is? What is it about two thousand eight? I guess twenty fifteen that sours all of this. Well, so so like I said, there's like even as the system is working and everyone sort of or most people believe in it in one way or another, um, that's also building up this sense of resentment and anger at the ways that it's, it's injuring people. 
Um, and it, it's a, a moment when the system stops working is the moment when all of that pent up rage can sort of break out and suddenly go in and, and like crystallize into something different that can form an alternative. And you see that, um, and that's true. So we were talking about uh, the perspective of the Chinese elite, but um, maybe more important here is the perspective of regular Chinese people who are who are being injured in a much more intense way by the operations of the market economy in China. Yeah, whether that's through uh, you know really intense exploitation or constant wage theft or just being uh, victimized by the police. Um, like thinking here mainly about the migrant, the migrant workforce, the, the, yeah. the manual working class in China. Um, you know, there are all, all of this anger is built up uh, at the in this huge working class. Um, there's also a lot of anger getting built up in the like the urban middle class um, people who uh, people who really are bought into the system in China and believe believe in it, but then get victimized by it in various ways. And so and so you brought up the the milk powder scandal, um, which happened in 2008. Uh, so like 2008 is a turning point, not just because of the financial crisis, but because I think a lot of these pressures sort of came to a head, like, like, like one, one, a sort of a moment of political crisis in the Chinese system was this, uh, scandal in which, um, uh, companies that were making, uh, milk, uh, for for babies were were adulterating it with a poisonous chemical and uh, dozens of babies died and, and hundreds were seriously injured like this strikes right at the heart of like your baby has been yeah. endangered <laughs> by the way that the market is operating like there's nothing more terrifying and more rage inducing than than that the system yeah. worked and like the reason the reason this adulteration is happening is because it was more profitable to mm-hmm. to to add melamine to the to the formula than it was to add actual milk um and so that was that's a moment of crisis in which all of a sudden like all this anger and the sense of betrayal and like the, the promises of the market economy are not being borne out and it's actually the market economy that is a problem like all of this is expressed and was and was really terrifying for the party. Yeah, um, that's the same year that the Olympics happens. Yeah, and is a moment in which the uh, the party is able to make a claim about Chinese nationalism, and the party has made China strong and it is and it is respected now in the global system. But that the the experience of the Olympics was also a moment for deepening this resentment because there were, there are all these protests in the West against. Um, uh, like the, the treatment of Tibetans, for example, in China. Uh, and so Chinese nationalists, that was a, a, a major moment of, of kind of anger and resentment on the part of Chinese nationalists who are saying, you're just, you're just criticizing us because you're afraid of us, because we finally have stood up, we have some status, and now you're criticizing us, we're always, we're always doing everything wrong. Yeah. And I mean, the way that, that, that the Chinese government has treated Tibet and Xinjiang and, and other minorities um, is absolutely, I mean, it's, it's uh, atrocious right. um, from, from a human rights or from a progressive perspective, but that's not how Chinese nationalists who like don't give a shit about human rights or progressive perspectives. Think about it. They think about it as here's the West feeling threatened by us coming in trying to shut us down. And you know, there's something to that. I don't think that's true of the human rights activists who are sort of at the forefront of this, but it, I think it is basically true yeah. at some level of the like, of the governing elites of these countries. Like when Mitt Romney 
makes Xinjiang like the number one issue that he's concerned about. There's a little bit of, you could probably kind of raise your eyebrows a little bit, like Mitt Romney, really? Okay. Right. Right. Well, I mean, it's, it's, you know, it's particularly sort of laughable in the case of the Republican party, which has uh, like a long history of Islamophobia expressing outrage about the Islamophobia of the Chinese government. Absolutely. Or, 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 or during the, the Hong Kong democracy protests when police brutality was directed against the protesters and the Republicans were outraged. And <laughs> just like a month later, when American police were brutalizing American protesters, the Republicans were right. absolutely right. on the side of the Protect police the brutality. Totally. And then 08, you think, oh, so 08 is this kind of high point on the one hand, but also the beginning of a breakdown um, for, I guess, like the Chinese elite's self-confidence in what they're doing, but also their confidence in their like participation in this thing called global neoliberalism being basically the United States number one trade partner, which it still is right. Like that we should be clear, like for all this talk about a cold war between the United States and China and this decoupling, like the number one, they are each other's number one trade partners. That's not changing anytime. Well, we don't think that's going to change anytime soon, Uh, but there has been kind of a hostility since then. And for you, you, you think a lot of it is kind of, the fact that China's economic role is different now. Like at earlier in the 80s and 90s, the Chinese uh, role was to kind of replace the cheap labor that was could no longer be found, um, although it was no longer seen as co- deemed cost effective, right? In in Euro America, it was you know originally it was like you know Japanese workers, then Korean, then Taiwanese workers, and now it's Chinese workers who make the clothes and the shoes and the toys and so on. Um, but then as China Kind of, and this isn't a surprise. They announced this from the very beginning, right? That they wanted to move up the ladder of the value chain ladder. That's two metaphors. They wanted to move up the value chain. They wanted to move up the ladder and get into more high profit, high tech sectors. That also that that also kind of creates tension with the United States. The United States is suddenly like, no, you're not allowed to do that, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, exactly, right. So, so one thing that's going on in and around 2008 is all, all of these kinds of social pressures that are being built up because of the nature of neoliberal society in China um, are sort of coming to a breaking point. Um, the other thing that happens is the global financial crisis, and that has a number of consequences. So one is that the Chinese elite loses its, uh, its buy-in to the basic neoliberal trajectory of the economy. So this really discredits ideologically the, the vision that, that the, the U.S., the Washington consensus had been pushing for many years uh, within the Chinese elite. And they begin thinking of, of different, uh, different approaches after this. So that's one thing. Uh, uh, another thing is that in the emergency response to the crisis, um, the Chinese development plan is significantly accelerated. So the idea, uh, the Chinese development strategy essentially was to make the hundreds of millions of um, Chinese people in the countryside available to international capital to exploit and thereby gain foreign investment that could be channeled into um, developing increasingly high value sectors of the, of the Chinese economy. Yeah. So um, like, which is to say, which is high profit sectors is the, is the way to say this. So the profits they make from making Nike shoes will go into making what now? Right. So, right. So it's like you start off with textiles and you move up to electronic, like basic consumer electronics, you're making radios and then you're making televisions and then you're making computers, you're making home appliances. 
And eventually, um, uh, uh, an important uh, an important development here is cars, yeah. uh, because um, the the different uh, the the different pieces that go into the car develop a whole range of electronics and manufacturing companies. Um, and then the direction that uh, China is aiming for now is to move into uh, like aircraft and like and those you know, the industries of the future, like the Chinese elite is very similar to the American elite in, in this count. They're thinking like, we have to dominate the top of the global economy. Otherwise we can't keep our country growing. Mm. And so we have to invest in these industries. So there's a real, a very strong sort of mirror, mirror image going on here between the two, the two elites. Yeah. And that process, that, de- that developmental strategy was accelerated in 2008 because the, the idea up to that point was, we're going to continue to export to the rich countries. Um, this is essentially the only way to get investment in the neoliberal global economy. Uh, and so China was unusually successful in that goal of drawing, uh, you know, foreign orders for export, for manufacturing exports. Um, and and one side effect of that is that the the rest of the developing countries were really cut out of yeah, the possibilities like there. South Asia, Southeast Asia, Latin America, Africa. Yep. So when you say they expedited their development plan, what, what happened in 2008 and afterwards? Right. So so what happened in 2008, so like what drove the 2008 crisis was that um, in, the, in the rich countries, wages had been flat for a long time, but consumption had been increasing. What had kept consumption increasing is that uh, people in the rich countries were increasingly indebted. What happened in 2008 is that unsustainable debt buildup collapsed. Yeah. And after that point, people in the rich countries were a lot more cautious about getting into unsustainable levels of debt again, which meant that the, the demand in the global economy sort of shut off. So the, the export markets that China had previously depended upon to sustain growth in China suddenly dried up. And they had to figure out very quickly a different way to sustain demand in the economy. Otherwise, growth would end and you would get all kinds of unemployment and you would get people angry at the government. And then you would have a disaster from the standpoint of the Communist Party. Um, so what they did is in the short term, they did a huge uh, stimulus program, much bigger as a percentage of GDP than any other country. Um, when you when you look at the when you look at both government spending and the uh, like the credit that was made available by state-owned banks, it 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 rises to about thirty percent of GDP in 2010, which is wow. which is enormous, unprecedented. Yeah. yeah. Um, so they poured a bunch of money into the economy to to prevent a recession, um, but they also took this opportunity for so a lot of that money just went into totally unproductive, like like extraordinary new local government buildings. Oh, these are the like, ghost towns, Just right? totally wasted, totally wasted. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, if you, but, if, but if you Google like ghost towns in China, you'll find all sorts of like amusement parks and like apartment complexes yes, that, were, right. that, that were never inhabited in the first place. Right. Yeah. Um, so that's part of it. And that was, you know, not good for the economy at all. But another part of it went to really, from, you know, from the sort of national interest standpoint of, of China, went to really productive outlets um, because they used this as an opportunity to to advance this industrial policy, to try to move resources into developing industries that China previously hadn't really um, had a presence in. And that one of the effects of that was to displace some of the uh, the multinational companies that were present in China. So part of part of what's going on in the background here from the, the, the loss of or the 
the breakdown in relations between the U.S. and China is that one of the key factors under neoliberalism that was keeping the relationship strong is that there were all these big corporations, Western corporations that were invested in China. Um, but they got pushed out of the, many of them got pushed out of the China market. Like which ones? And so suddenly, uh, so like Cater- Caterpillar is a good example. The, the like construction equipment, uh, manufacturer, um, the, uh, Chinese construction equipment made a dramatic, leap in this, in, in the, in the fallout of the, of the global financial crisis and the stimulus. Um, and so like, so Caterpillar was, was hugely invested in China and was, and relied on China for a lot of its growth because Chinese growth rates were so much faster than most other countries. Um, like suddenly you lose a lot of that support for, a, a basically friendly U S China yeah. relationship when, when foreign companies, uh, lose their position. And so like one thing that's going on in the Chinese elite is the sense of, um, like pride, like we did it, we did it in a way that other people couldn't do it yeah. and, and we're not being recognized and that's not fair. That's one thing. But another thing is a real sense of fragility and anxiety that if they don't figure out this really narrow path and really hit this path, then there could be a uh, existential threat in the form of popular unrest and, and, and economic collapse. And so you get both of these sort of like, uh, yeah. a, a, like a belligerent er- like an arrogant kind of demand for recognition on the one side and on the other side, a, a really serious anxiety about, about what the future could bring. And, and you throw into the mix, then the, uh, the United States, the most powerful country in the world is suddenly extremely hostile to China. So there's a whole package here of intense pressures operating on the Chinese leadership. And the outcome I think is what we're seeing under Xi Jinping and the, the, like the change of course that has happened under Xi Jinping. And there's, there's something similar going on in countries around the world. So when we see this global shift towards reactionary politics, towards nationalism and authoritarianism, um, I think we need to understand it primarily coming from internal factors in those countries. But those internal factors are a result of changes in the global system after 2008. And so I think a lot of this, what you've outlined is useful because, you know, it's not not an exhaustive local, you know, like sort of like zooming in explanation of everything going on in China, but it is an explanation that can help to, well, it it contributes to a larger explanation of what's going on with China that points to forces that are beyond China, right? And, And to suggest that these transformations, obviously Xi Jinping is his own thing and he's doing what he's... His, he has his own thought and reaction to what he kind of perceives as going on around him in China. Um, but there are also these kind of factors beyond his immediate control that are also shaping what's going on in China. And that's kind of um, a useful corrective to a lot of this sort of nation-based, national, nationalistic analysis about, you know, China, good or bad, United States, good or bad. Um, right. Coming coming to China with this, um, the framework, the sort of like democracy versus autocracy framework causes us to misinterpret some things that are going on in China. So just like one example, I mean, it causes it, it, sometimes it's, it's quite adequate to interpreting what's going on in China. So like, <laughs> like um, the, the increased repression of, of political dissent in China. Um, uh, it doesn't, doesn't like help us understand why that increased, but it does, it does help us understand those dynamics. But, but another set of dynamics is like Xi Jinping, a major priority of Xi Jinping has been to centralize power in his own hands. And if you come at it from a 
thinking about authoritarianism primarily, then your conclusion is, oh, well, Xi Jinping is like a power mad dictator. And it's not that that's necessarily wrong, um, but I think it does miss what's what the motivation is. The motivation is not because Xi Jinping wants to control everything. There's been a conclusion within the Chinese elite that Xi, Xi Jinping is sort of the, the personification of this conclusion within the elite that the society has become unacceptably fractious and there are uh, desperately needed reforms that we need to undertake in order to restore the legitimacy of the Communist Party and in order to, and in order to make sure that economic growth has a, a strong future. Um, but in order to make those changes, we need to overcome the interest groups that, are, that have been created through years of market reform that are currently a serious obstacle. So interest groups that include um, state-owned enterprises that have uh, a vested interest in maintaining the way that the economy works because it's working for them. Um, also interest groups like local, local and provincial government officials. And the, the impetus behind the centralization is we're going to pursue these reforms, but in order to do that, we need to have enough power to actually make sure those reforms are implemented. Yeah. And so if you just come at it with a very simplistic liberal framework of trying to understand what's going on in China, then, then you miss that, um, that aspect, which is this like centralization is required in order to undertake a set of reforms and they may not be progressive reforms. Right. Um, but, uh, but they, they're responding to the impasse that has been reached in the Chinese economy and Chinese society. Uh, and, and we should understand that yeah. is the motivation. Okay. So I think maybe this is like a good moment to kind of pivot back to and, and kind of, kind of wrap things up is how does this kind of, now that we know a little bit more about China, how does this kind of help us think about what's going on in the United States and this United States conversation about the U S China relationship? Um, I know you've been writing something recently about um, if the United States does um, advance a sort of industrial policy, um, you know, there's sort of a, a crossroads between an industrial policy that is organized around hostility against China. And that's what you find, obviously, as a, uh, a worst case scenario, a dead end, um, as opposed to an industrial policy that could be embraced and celebrated by progressives and by leftists, both, you know, for what it could do for the United States, but also what it could also do for the world. Um, and I also kind of want to throw this out there because you mentioned this to me in our talk before the podcast that you think that you know the united states approach to china is not just like one of a hundred different policies towards a hundred different countries you actually kind of think it's worth paying attention to the u.s china relationship almost as this kind of like primary or 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 sort of like uniquely important uh thing to pay attention to because that might just kind of shape all sorts of big um problems facing the world including of course climate change and also just you know global inequality and things like that. So um, do you want to kind of like spell out what you mean, though, in terms of a, a non-nationalist or internationalist approach to, to industrial policy? Right, right. So, um, so maybe the, the first point is to say that, yeah, China is important in a way that um, a lot of it, other issues are not important. I think the, the reason is not so much because of China per se as it is that a lot of different groups in the United States are are working through the crisis of neoliberalism through China. So, and what that means is, um, like everyone who was successful over the last forty years in whatever realm they were successful in, 
it was because they fit into neoliberal patterns. And that means that they sort of took it for granted and they built their own sense of value through those patterns. And now those patterns are disintegrating and they need a way to figure out what's to understand what's going on. So I I want to avoid the kind of, um, I think unhelpful vulgar leftist idea that it's just sort of like self-interest that the elites just want to make money or something. And they'll say whatever they, whatever they say, you know, in order to keep making money. Um, I think we need to understand the ideological dimension of this. And the ideological dimension is not necessarily well worked out. Um, Like most people who are successful, they don't have sort of a deep philosophy of how the world works. (laughs) When that sense of how the world works is destabilized, they'll reach out for some kind of explanation of what's going on. And, And China is offering that explanation for a wide range of people. So it's offering that explanation for people who who are invested in like us military power over the world for people who are uh, worried about organized labor and the, because, because China has played such a uh, important role in the history of the global economy. Um, China is the face in some sense of, of the collapse of the American working class, even though I think that explanation is, is completely wrong. Um, not least because the, the Chinese working class collapsed at the same time and in the same way. Um, but nonetheless, this is China like offers the face and this is the same, you know, in, in the discussion you had with eco day, um, it's like people will put, put a human face on these abstract forces that are, that are assaulting them. And then they'll go after those people with that human face, thinking that they're going to make progress against those forces and really not understanding. So China is that, is that human face for a bunch of different people, right? So the national security people, you have organized labor, you have. Um, like corporate corporate leaders who are worried about their control over high profit sectors, um, you have uh, like human rights activists, um, and like the you know the Chinese human like with the reactionary global turn, the Chinese human rights record has gotten much much worse, and it was already bad and already a focus of human rights criticism. Um, and and then and then you have a group of people who are concerned about democracy in the United States and globally, and because China so successfully resisted the global democratic wave uh, in the neoliberal period, uh, China has always sort of been the face of authoritarianism. Uh, Now, as you get the reactionary turn globally and a revival of authoritarianism around the world and challenges to democracy around the world, a lot of people are understanding that through China, sometimes directly saying like China is exporting authoritarianism and and that's what's going on. But if not directly, then symbolically, like China is sort of a stand-in for the for the reversal of democracy. And so we need to attack China in order to save democracy. Um, that's definitely the way that the Biden administration is talking about it. I don't think that that's exactly the way the Biden administration is thinking about it. But this theme of, of like protecting democracy by challenging China is, is really prominent in their rhetoric. Um, and so... So China is important because it's giving all these different groups a common framework, even though they mean something different when they talk about China. Yeah. It's giving them all a common enemy against which they can mobilize. And that means they can all get on the same page. And it's not clear what the what the policy outcome is going to be from that, because yeah. um, it's not clear. But I, I, you know, the worry is that the, the militarists and the people who want to maintain um, global inequality with the United States at the top, the worry is that those people will benefit the most from this um, and uh, and be able to use this other set of concerns about 
uh, about human rights and about, um, you know, about like Chinese uh, bullying of other countries, uh, which, which are, which are serious concerns and, and need to be criticized. And we need to develop a strategy to respond to the concern is that, um, the people with the most power over this agenda are going to take it in a way that's, that's profoundly counterproductive to the U S China relationship, which would lead to, uh, serious conflict between the U S and China, which would lead probably eventually to, to serious international violence. Um, certainly would lead to increased racism and nationalism in the United States and in China. So this is a path that we don't want to go down just because of the way it would affect the U.S.-China relationship. But I think maybe more, even more significantly than that, it would prevent us from pursuing a different path out of the neoliberal global economy. So the direction it's taking us is nationalist conflict, zero-sum nationalist conflict over who is going to survive in a global economy that has low growth, right? You live in capitalism, you need growth. So if growth is low in the global economy, there's going to be a violent struggle over who gets to grow. And that's the, that's the path we're currently on. The, the alternative path is one that changes the global economy so that, uh, so that everyone can grow. And the, the way in which to do that the, the, the requirement to get everyone to grow is to have growth work in an egalitarian way in contrast to the way that neoliberal growth has worked. Yeah. Yeah. So we're, it seems like what you're kind of saying is and to where we started is <clears throat> if we we're at this kind of crossroads moment with the sort of breakdown of the previous kind of dominant economic worldview, political worldview, that the end of one thing does not, provide easy directions for like what's going to replace it you know it's sort of it's an underdetermined question right now uh it could go you know in, in bad right-wing nationalistic ways and you're hoping from a political policy political activist perspective to kind of if, if it's possible we this is also an opportunity for the left or progressives to push it in a different direction that as you said you know 20 years ago would not actually have been possible right like Right. With the first Bush administration or the first administration of the second Bush, right? That you couldn't to, to, to talk about oh neoliberalism's failures and its inequality, et cetera, that you would get zero traction beyond like uh, you know, ad busters or in like small right. liberal arts colleges, right? Um, <laughs> yeah, but now it's exactly. like in foreign policy magazine. So right. out of curiosity, I know like you have been doing a lot of activism work and having policy discussions. Do you feel like uh, how far do you think this, your your message, you know, of internationalists kind of putting, prioritizing people's needs rather than corporate profits and so on, do you think that they're actually, that, that you can persuade people um, of this, not just kind of people who already agree with you, but sort of, you know, is this message taking hold? Is there potential for this message to, t- to take hold? I know you've talked to sort of more institutionalized people about th- these ideas as well. Um, yeah, what do you, what do you, what, how do you see the landscape uh, today? Um, I think, I mean, there's been a there's been a huge opening just in terms of ideas, and people are willing to listen to these ideas in a way that was totally impossible even even ten years ago, um, certainly twenty years ago. Um, so I, I think there's, in that sense, there's there's a possibility. Whether people, you know, I think I think for a lot of people, the the hesitation is is not so much. Um, that uh, uh, like an inclusive and progressive form of globalization would be a good idea. Uh, I think the the hesitation is more, well, that's just a dream. That's not, you know, that's not the world we live in. We're not going to be able to make it there. 
Um, which I, you know, I think there's good reason for thinking that like the, the behavior of the United States and China so far, and, and the, and, you know, the reason, the reason that the U S and China are particularly important for this idea of progressive globalization is uh, the U S and China would have to cooperate to, to make the reforms in the global economy to, to pull this off. Um, and the key, the key, and just to sort of fill out that, that slogan a little bit, uh, moving capital to places that have been starved of capital for decades or forever, um, which is uh, primarily the global South, but also many parts of the global North that have been sort of cut out of the global economy um, is the first part. The, the second part is strengthening labor so that uh, the revived growth in the global economy were, was distributed broadly uh, rather than being concentrated in the hands of wealthy. And, and the third piece that has to go with this is that that investment needs to create good jobs, but those jobs need to be done in fields that will address the, the actual existential crises that, that we face, which are, above all, climate in the long term and in the short term, um, getting the pandemic under control. So when you look at that basic agenda and you look at where the U.S. and China are at, um, there, there are parts of the sort of official ideology in both the U.S. and China that are supportive of these basic goals. But that is not how the, the two countries are conducting themselves right now. So it's, it, is, it is fair to be skeptical that this is a possibility. Um, I think a really important part of this is, is the question of whether progressives in the United States are able to gain much more power than we currently have, and whether as they do so, they have this kind of internationalist vision, or on the other hand, they don't really care about the global system, or they opportunistically use great power conflict to advance their domestic agenda. I think that's a real, that's a real question. Um, I feel pretty optimistic that progressives can, uh, can understand and, and embrace um, a progressive idea of how the global economy should be reshaped, but there are very few people who are currently working on that issue. Yeah. And it needs, it's not nearly as advanced as it needs to be. So, so it really requires um, a lot more, investment, a lot more effort to make sure that progressives get, uh, get behind a vision of the global economy that, um, that, that would, that would actually be progressive. Yeah. I mean, it seems like in the last decade we've had, uh, you know, Occupy, Black Lives Matter, these kind of big movements that have pushed a lot of progressive voices left of the democratic party into the mainstream, perhaps into office. And I think, I, w- I would be optimistic that even if like the politicians or the kind of think tanks or whatever that have been set up are not sensitive to global issues that they could be right. Like that, that these could be sort of entry points into a broader conversation. And like, you know, it's only been 13 years since 2008. Like, like it's kind of natural that it takes kind of stages for, 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 for ideas to develop. I remember even in 16, Bernie was kind of criticized all the time for basically being a nationalist. Um, and mm-hmm. in many ways he still is, but you know, he was kind of at the, or, or, <clears throat> at the margins of his campaign was kind of pushed to think more uh, globally uh, and, and not just kind of in sort of a sort of ethnocentric or not eth- nationalistic way. Um, yeah. I mean, do you, have you had conversations or do you, do you notice, observe, or personally have had conversations where you think, a lot of these progressive groups, um, I think we kind of know, have heard of a lot of them or seen a lot of them on the internet, right? Or have have been open to these ideas that you've advanced um, or do you feel like some are just kind of actively hostile and are very just like United States-centric to their own detriment? 
I, I think it's both. Um, I've seen a greater level of openness to, uh, to thinking in, in what I would say is a progressive way about the global system and, and China, US China relations. I've seen a greater level of openness amongst um, like members of uh, members, like staff in members of Congress's offices than I expected. So I, I feel so like um, we've talked through Justice is Global. We've talked with uh, with uh, Bernie Sanders staff. We've talked with Ilan Omar's staff um, and, and others. And it's not the top priority right now at all, but they're integrating it into what they're doing in, in a strong way. And that's really, really important. And, and Bernie himself published an op-ed in Foreign Affairs uh, warning against ending up in a confrontation with China. Um, I, and that I see that as really sort of agenda setting for, for the, the wider progressive movement. Um, so I think that the openness is there. Um, there, there are, there are problems. Definitely. There are people who are basically national, nationally oriented. Uh, there are people who, for whom the Chinese human rights record is just too, is too much and they can't, um, and they can't think of a, of a, of a non-confrontational, like a cooperative relationship between the two countries for that reason. Uh, which is, which is, which is understandable. I just don't think it's very useful. It's not, it's, it doesn't help human rights in China to, to deepen co- conflict between the U S and China. Um, but, but I mean, nonetheless, I mean, there are a lot of people who have drawn that conclusion and, and, and that's. And, and they and they will get behind it for that reason. So so I think and and then there are, and then there are you know people on the left who are apologists for the Chinese government um, that are also a, a serious problem. Yeah. Um, they don't they don't really have any institutional power, but they do have a lot of. They're very loud in these discussions, and um, and and I think it really distracts. Uh, from from the issue, which is we need to understand the way the global system works. And rather than pitting the United States against China and being like the United States, you know, it's just it's just the reversal of the yeah. of the US dominant approach to be like the US is great and China's terrible. You just reverse it and are like, well, everything that's bad is the United States. And so everything the United States opposes must be good. And yeah. therefore China is good. Um, like this is also, this is just as bad of an analysis, just as unresponsive to what has actually happened in China over the last 40 years as the, as the, as the flip side of it is. Right. So I think that, you know, I, I don't, I don't worry about them screwing up policy or something, but I do worry about them sapping the kind of consensus that we need within the left for a different kind of relationship with China because they're, they're constantly denouncing people who point yeah. out that China is a deeply unjust society, just like the United States. Yeah. I don't know, <clears throat> you know, what the long-term prospects of it is. I do just, I, feel, I do feel like, you know, that presence looks sort of like tankiest presence among like the socialists left in the United States. Um, I almost wonder if it's just like a symptom that people would or should welcome more just like education or reading about China. Yeah. Uh, that's the optimistic yeah. view. Maybe in five years we'll just be like, man, like they really fucked everything up. But um, <laughs> well, uh, I mean, I you know, I I think one of the problems here is that the, those two sides, those that are flip sides of each other, yeah, they feed right. on each other. Right. And the stronger the the stronger the the 
like China confrontation people get, the the more the the China apologists seem to right. be right. And so, you know, and it's the same way, same way between the US and China itself, where the the confrontationalists in the US strengthen the confrontationalists in China and around and around. So you get you get these really destructive cyclical dynamics where the where the the forces that are an obstacle to progressive change are present on both sides and feeding each other. Yeah. Um, so we have to we have to find find ways to to like interrupt that cycle. Yeah. Which is why you know I was kind of perhaps belaboring the point earlier about escaping nationalist categories because then you're just stuck in either saying right. one is good, yes. one is bad, one is good, one is bad. Yep. Okay, I think that's a good point to end it on. I mean, is there for those interested in kind of learning more about your work? Is there anything you recommend? Anything you want to? I think we call this plugs on a podcast. Um, uh-huh. Your Twitter feed or articles that are coming out. Justice is yeah, I'm, you know, yeah, yeah. I'm on Twitter, uh, JWD Werner. Um, I I try to stay away from some of the more toxic debates. I try to make my points and get into constructive debates. So hopefully it's not too demoralizing if you want to follow me there. Um, there's, there's a list of my articles on my, on my Twitter feed on the Twitter bio. Um, I have a couple of pieces that will be coming out fairly soon, actually a review of Isabella Weber's book in descent, a piece on industrial policy in Boston review. Um, and then this, uh, the, the working paper version of the, um, of the Boston University paper and presentation that, that you mentioned earlier. Um, and then, yeah, I, I would really encourage anyone who's interested in getting more active on these questions. Um, check out Justice is Global. Justice is Global is trying to do organizing to remake the global economy, to prevent great power conflict. Um, and the, the, the most important campaign that we have going right now is about uh, distributing COVID vaccines to the global South that have really been cut out. So this is this is an it is desperately important for humanitarian reasons, but it's also desperately important for the future of the global economy. That it, it work in a way that is inclusive and spreads growth broadly, rather than is just a contest between which powerful countries dominate the intellectual property for the high value sectors. I mean that the the failure to get the vaccines right really demonstrates the stakes here. We're talking about billions of lives that are being put at risk because it's not a priority for the rich countries to get this done. And because the public health infrastructure of the global South has been hollowed out for decades by the way the neoliberal global economy works, that puts us all at risk. It's not just, this isn't an issue of, of charity. This is an issue of creating an economy that, that actually helps people in the global South and people in the rich countries and ideally reduces that sense of difference between among all of us. Um, so yeah, get like, please uh, get in touch with an organizer on the Justice is Global website, or I like, I really just strongly encourage everyone to get involved in an organization. It doesn't have to be the one that I'm active in, but get involved in an organization. This is the best way to, uh, to actually build some power and, and try to change, um, change the path that we're on. <clears throat> sounds that's a very heartening message to end it on Jake thanks a lot for doing this podcast absolutely thanks so much Andy time to 
Sei tu. 